This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 is a series of five events exploring how Otautahi Christchurch can achieve its climate goals. Organized by Te Butahi Centre for Architecture and City Making, each event features a range of thought-provoking speakers, from local experts providing the latest information to local businesses and residents sharing their own experiences and actions. This is part one of the fifth and final event called Moving Around a 21st Century City, which explores the best ways of cutting carbon in your day-to-day travel with local people who are already doing it. The event is introduced by Dr. Jessica Halliday. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Kete manafinua o tēnī takiwa naitua hūruri, kete mihi, kete mihi, kete mihi. Ko Jessica Halliday tōku ingoa, ko ahau te kaiwhakahaere o Te Pūtahi, Centre for Architecture and City Making. Kia ora, tato katoa. It's my pleasure to welcome you all. Those in the room and those who've just joined us online, welcome. Uh, to Moving Around a 21st Century City, the fifth and final event in this year's Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 series. This series is about sharing information about how together we can reduce emissions in Ōtotahi Christchurch. Now, addressing climate change, reducing emissions, is now a collective goal to which we've committed, which we've committed to, both at a national level, a regional level, and here, a local level as a city. And everyone can contribute in some way. We totally acknowledge the complexity and uh, interaction of environmental, social, and cultural these co- challenges that we face. Um, but also that the topics in this series are not, indivisib- are not divisible. So land use, which we discussed yesterday, and transport, which we're discussing today, are so intertwined that they are essentially the same thing. But it's so exciting to be here at this moment because you get the sense that things really are changing now. And they're changing here, not just in Glasgow at COP26. When Joseph Hullen opened the first event in this series earlier this year, he used a really well-known naitahu whakatauki. Mō tātou a mō ka uri a muri akinei, for us and our children after us. This whakatauki reminds us why emissions reduction and addressing climate change really matters, who we need to keep in mind as we think, plan and act. There are two groups of people that Te Putahi um, would like to thank. There are two groups of people who have made today's event possible. Firstly, our sponsors and supporters, our series partner, the Christchurch City Council, and our series sponsor, the It's Time Canterbury Climate Campaign, and our research partner, the Huritanga Thread of Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities, one of the National Science Challenges. And secondly, The others who've made this afternoon's event possible are our 17, yes, 17 excellent speakers. Thank you all for accepting our invitation to speak and help us get to grips with this, the most vital 
of topics for climate action. So I'd like to welcome Councillor Mike Davidson to open this afternoon's Christchurch conversation. Welcome, Mike. Kina mona, kina awa, kina waka, kina tātai tangata, tina koutou. Kina mate, hare, hare, hare. Kite puna ora, tina koutou. Kita mana fenoa, tina koutou. Tina koutou kahui mai nei, ki tene fare, ki te korero, ki te fakarongo, ki na kopapa, oto tato hui. No mai, toti mai, tina koutou kato. Ko naitahu te iwi, ko naituahu riri te hapu, no kotorani, no airani, no inarani, oku te puna hoki. Ki te noho o ki o tatahi, ko Mike Davidson, taku inua, tina koto kato na mihinui kia koto. Decades of investment in prioritising the movement of motor vehicles has played a major role in creating social inequities and the climate and ecological emergencies we now face. As a city, a nation and as a planet, we need to change how we move around. We need to live in a city where most people choose to walk, bike and take emission-free public transport as their transport mode. This also needs to be accessible. I like to call this green mobility, and green mobility needs to be the future of transport. However, this requires a step change, and everyone working together with a shared purpose. People need to give politicians the mandate, and in a world of mis, dis, and malinformation, the politicians need to be well informed and resolute in doing the right thing for people and planet. In the recent 10-year long-term plan, Christchurch City Council, as well as reconfirming its 100-kilometre major cycleway route programme, will be investing more in local cycling connections. Council also committed to over $100 million for public transport infrastructure, increased the investment in footpath maintenance and the creation of slow-speed neighbourhoods. 25% of the transport budget in the long-term plan will be invested in green mobility. Compared to other cities, this is very good. And while other councils envy what Otatahi is doing in the cycling space, we are not actually doing enough overall. Finally, I'd like to thank Jessica and the team from Tapatahi for this afternoon's event and for this series of Christchurch conversations. The City Council is really pleased to be able to support it. Norera, tina koto, tina koto, tina tato kato. Thank you, Mike. Uh, kia ora koutou. My name's Michelle Hollis, and I am uh, going to MC most of today. Today we're exploring how we move around our city in the face of the climate crisis. And as we launch into a conversation about transport, I'd just like to say one thing, one word that Jessica used yesterday, actually, curiosity, and I'd like to encourage everyone here to approach conversations about transport with curiosity. Perhaps the biggest stumbling block we have in this area is all or nothing thinking. It's not about the bike versus the car. Most people who ride a bike do drive as well. It's not about the car versus the bike versus the e-scooter versus the pedestrian. 
The reality is that more and more people are adopting a balanced approach to getting around the city. They walk to the local playground, they commute by bike, but they take the bus if the weather's foul, and they use a car for heavy loads or complicated itineraries. It's about choosing what's the right tool for the job. In that spirit, let's crack into a conversation starting with a young person's view. And I'd like to welcome Piper Pengalli to the stage. Piper lives in Edgware. She has a CV already, which many people would die for, even um, at my age. <laughs> um, heavily involved in youth work and leadership here in Ōtuatahi and uh, is currently on the management team of Youth Voice Canterbury, as well as being a UC student. Piper. I grew up in a city of car parks. Tremors came, buildings fell, and cars arose from the rubble. In a city reinventing itself, I was a young person at the table. Many council meetings did I attend, submissions did I write, and opinions did I give. Not least being the Greater Christchurch Regional Public Transport Plan, which became a welcome distraction from school exams, as I gathered the thoughts of 500 young people for a submission. This year, I got my full driving licence. That sits heavy with me. The lady behind the counter at Waka Kotahi said to me at the end, she said, oh, you'll be excited now. No, I wasn't. Instead, I was left feeling like a traitor. I had given in to the petrol, the cars, the road trips, the road. I don't yet own a car, but I'm already so invested in this system merely by virtue of its design and societal expectations. I don't enjoy filling up with petrol, not just because I'm a broke student, um, but because every drop detracts from my future. I'm not here today as a demanding woke youth, but because transport innovation is crucial for our future. In 2030, I'll be 27, four years out of uni and embarking in adult life. 2030 isn't far away, but the changes we make before then will play a dramatic role in determining our future climate. I'm here as a person concerned about their future. And like every young person, I have a vision for the future. Like every young person of my generation, that vision is underpinned by a desire to survive, and if not, to thrive. In a time where climate anxiety is the latest pandemic, hope for this vision keeps me sane. My transportation vision for 2030 has lots of nooks and crannies, but it can be boiled down quite simply. I want a cultural shift that supports thriving, a vision I don't see as a radical idea. So what are the cogs that drive this cultural shift? What comes first, the chicken or the egg, the system or the users? Well, if you ask me as a young person, it'll always be the system. Young people are one of the most frequent users of the bus system, yet this isn't by choice, but by financial and licensing restrictions. Creating an attractive system will result in greater retention rates and improved long-term bus patronage. As youth grow up and are liberated from these restrictions, so we need to capture their attention while we have it. A silver bullet to our transportation problem does not exist. We're not all gonna be riding hoverboards or driving EVs, so we need to design our cities and our thinking to welcome a flexible transportation approach. When we leave the house, we actively consider our daily chariot, be it bike, car, foot, or scooter. But to divest from our single occupancy driving inclination, we need to invest in our alternatives. More bike lanes, alleyways, and streetlights are just a few examples. Bigger investments like light rail for Christchurch's commuting masses should be prioritised over south, east, northwest, and southwest highway corridors. And as for buses, they need a major facelift, a task bigger than a one-size-fits-all face job, um, buses need to be clean, quiet, electric and safe. But above all, they need to be reliable and accessible. 
Payment and fares are not the biggest influence on bus patronage, but they make a huge difference. Payment by phone or paywave methods need to be implemented to remove any barrier to busing. Public transportation needs to be more than just a means of getting from an A to B as well. In a neoliberal world obsessed with productivity, we need to convince users of the value of getting more time on the bus to send emails, listen to a podcast, finish off work, or in my case, learn a language. After all, the bus is the self-driving car you never knew that you always had. We need our public transport providers to put our people and our wellbeing first, to create a system which prioritises the experience of its users, rather than just meeting the bare necessities. At the start of this speech, I described my lived experience of the resurgence of cars from the earthquakes. The earthquakes revolutionised our communities in the same way that COVID is doing so now. So as we attempt to re-stimulate the economy post-COVID, I urge us to invest in, in systemic changes that will guide the habits of society, because what we invest in today, we save ourselves from in the future. So my vision, cultural change rather than climate change. Thank you so much, Piper. Thank you. Uh, here's a fact about Christchurch Transport. 80% of people who drive to work do so alone. I'd like to introduce Karishma Kumar now. Before I met Karishma and her colleagues, I thought that transport planners were really boring people. <laughs> Turns out they're not. <laughs> Karishma has over six years of experience in the transport planning industry. Uh, she was based in, in the UK, in London, before coming to us, and we're very lucky to have her. Um, I'd just like to invite her to come straight up and share some of her knowledge about Christchurch's transport emissions. It's good to know that transport planners aren't boring, so that's, that's very good to know. So as um, Michelle mentioned, I'm here to talk to you about the emissions profile in Christchurch and what this means for future planning. So before I get stuck into it, I'm just going to give you a quick outline of what I'm going to be covering. Oh. Cheers. Um, so I'm going to give you an overview of the emissions profile in Christchurch, how people are travelling Christchurch and what the impacts are, and where do we need to head in the future to meet our climate targets and how do we get there. How do we get there is going to be the most important part in how we, in how we meet our targets. So here's a um, diagram to give you a quick overview of the emissions profile in Christchurch. So what does our emissions profile look like in Christchurch? So as you can see, 54% of our emissions come from um, transport, and of this, 36% come from on-road transport. Our um, data shows that 40% of our daily trips are under 4K and 8% are under 1k. So that kind of just really shows for those who are able, a lot of the trips on the network can be converted to those more sustainable trips. So therefore we really need to consider the role of our transport system and how we use it to reduce our emissions moving forward. Our emission targets are ambitious and we have set to be net zero by 2045. In order to meet that goal we have an interim target of reducing our emissions by 50% by 25, noting that that's five years ahead of the national target. So how does this compare to other cities in New Zealand? I think this is, um, this is quite interesting. So the diagram, or the image, reflects the total gross emissions per person in different cities of New Zealand. So that's the carbon footprint per person. So as you can see, the emissions per capita in Christchurch is on par, 7.1 with Auckland. However, in comparison to Wellington, it's um, much higher. 
And this is due to differences in travel trends. So a lot of people in, in Wellington travel by bus then in comparison to Christchurch. So how are people travelling to work in Christchurch? So the latest travel to work census revealed that around 61% travel to work by car. In comparison to New Zealand, we're higher than the average, than the average for, for New Zealand. However, more people bike in Christchurch than in comparison to New Zealand. So that's quite interesting. How are we travelling to education? Similar to work, a large proportion of residents and children travel to school by car. And travelling to school by bike, foot and public transport seems to be much higher in comparison to work. So just from those stats, we can tell that a lot of people uh, travel by car in Christchurch and evidence shows that this is having an impact on our city. So I'm just going to go through kind of what these images sort of mean. So cars and more cars on the road uh, means more air pollution and the evidence shows that our particular matters in Christchurch are currently just sitting on the maximum allowable, allowable standard set by the World, World Health Organization. So that's all the um, air pollution that comes out the exhaust pipes in cars. And even though we're sitting on the allowable standard, research indicates that there are no safe labels. So, I mean, overseas evidence um, from London actually shows that your lung capacity will pretty much decrease if you have a lot of PM in the atmosphere. Cars also contribute to um, more, more congestion. So our models show that if travel patterns remain the same, the number of trips will continue to grow. So therefore, the congestion is going to grow. And this also leads to um, poor road safety outcomes. So if you have more cars on the road, vulnerable transport users like cyclists are, might find it intimidating to drive on arterial or some other routes that are fairly busy by cars. And lastly, over the last decade, our city has become dependent on has become car dependent due to an increase in urban fringe development as a consequence of the earthquakes and lots of residential development and businesses had to move out and historical and current investment in transport has enabled driving to, to pretty much become more easy, easier cheaper and convenient and all of this has led to poor urban design outcomes which makes some of our city unattractive which is which is what we're what, which is what all the national policies are trying to make better, is to make the city more livable. So in light of our current state and future targets for emission, where do we want to head? The image below shows a transformation of Oxford Terrace over the years. So we want to head where Oxford Terrace is now. So you can see the image where it's very vibrant and there's lots of people dwelling on the street. So we really want our city to be safe and livable and where people want to hang around in. And besides Alongside that, we want the city to be productive and vibrant where businesses thrive. And all of these aspects will enable us to transition to a low-carbon city. So how do, we, how do we get there? Based on international and national evidence gathered, here are some examples of levers we may be able to pull to get to where we want to get to. And I'll just quickly um, explain a few examples. So... Through our spatial planning and based on evidence overseas, it's if we encourage better land use planning, for example, plan residential developments or encourage residential developments near sustainable transport corridors, then you're more likely to get people um, to use these transport options and you're also providing more access. And that's an example uh, for the carrot 
um, and for the stick low emission neighbourhoods and low traffic neighbourhoods are becoming increasingly popular overseas and in Auckland they have started to trial out some of these initiatives so we could start to use we could start to trial out some of these initiatives here and use greenish green infrastructure within those initiatives to provide a healthy environment so innovative streets is sort of already doing that as well so that's that's a good and charging to use our road or to enter a particular road has become a increasing popular way to reduce car use and also reduce emissions and also reinvesting that money gathered on those charges to reinvest in sustainable transport has become a good way of providing those opportunities to create an equitable transport system so this will only really work if um we encourage growth in the right areas through our spatial planning and we use transport to shape and support this in order to do this, we need to have the right policies, tools and frameworks in place to support this, uh, as well as central government support through legislation changes where needed to enable some of those actions and funding required to enable some of those big changes on the road network. This will enable us to plan for a future and will allow us to meet our climate change target targets whilst also creating a place that everyone wants to be in. And that's, and that's all. So thank you. <laughs> Karishma, thank you very much. Um, we're going to swap over to Zoom now, and we're going to hear from Caroline Shaw. So these events are very much about Christchurch, and we love to have Christchurch people, but um, Caroline is such a great communicator on the issue of what makes a healthy transport system that we had to have her. Uh, she is a public health medicine specialist and epidemiologist. Her current research is at the interface of transport, health, and climate change particularly around the health opportunities offered by decarbonising the transport sector. And she's based at the University of Otago in Wellington. And I'm looking at Rick, and I'm going to vacate now. Tēnā koutou. Nō koutou ni akutikuna, nō unyara ni hoki. He tanga te tiri te au. E tikuake o e te awa kairenge, e te rohi o te aatiawa, e runga e te nonga o ki atua, e te taha o waifutu. Uh, ko Caroline Shaw-o, he takuta, he kayako, he kairanga hau hoki. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou kātou. Um, kia ora koutou, um, my name's Caroline Shaw, I'm from the University of Otago in Wellington. Um, uh, I am from Wellington in the area in the rohi of Te Atiawa, iwi. Um, I've grown up here and I continue to live here. I'm an epidemiologist and public health medicine specialist and I work in the Department of Public Health. And I'm going to be talking about why a public health doctor is talking about transport today. Um, so just a, a quick recap, what determines health? And I think it's important to put that in a little bit of context first. Uh, when we think about what determines health, about 20% of it is genetics. About 20% is the healthcare, the hospital system that we have. And the rest of it, the majority of it, is the social and environmental um, factors, uh, things like housing, things like employment. And it's important to recognise that there's about $20 billion that goes into healthcare each year through Boat Health. Only about 2 to 3% of that actually goes into that 60%. Most of it goes into healthcare. And transport falls into, as one of these factors that falls into the 60%. Hence, um, 
uh, public health like to meddle in the area of transport. Um, and these are the pathways to health from the transport system. And I think what's worth pointing out here is that um, there are some really great things that transport does for health, um, provides us with opportunities for physical activity through cycling and walking. Um, it allows us to access green spaces. Um, it lets us access healthcare as well and also um, maintain connections with, um, with whānau, with um, places of significance to us like marae, papakāinga. And for children, it allows them, and for elderly people, it can allow them to be independently mobile, which we know is really important, particularly for children's development. But it also has a whole lot of detrimental impacts, things like contamination, the way that we design our systems excludes a large group of people. Um, it causes a lot of air pollution, it emits greenhouse gas. Transport can be really stressful for people um, through road rage and through continued sort of um, low-level stress engaging with traffic. Um, we think probably about one in every 20 deaths in New Zealand are as a result of the transport system. Could actually be higher than that. No one's really looked comprehensively at it. Um, the other thing to mention is that um, many of these pathways that I'm showing you the image of here, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to quantify them. So we've really only got, we can quantify a small subset of them to understand what the impact is. And the other thing to say is that there's lots of inequities here. So the people that get the least benefits um, and contribute least to the adverse impacts of um, the transport system, so they drive least and produce the least greenhouse gases, they're the ones most likely to have their health harmed by it through higher exposure to air pollution, more likely to die in vehicle crashes. And they also have to spend proportionately more of their income on travel. For example, low-income households in New Zealand in 2019, they spent 28% of their income on travelling. When you think of how high the cost of housing is, there's nothing much left over after that. The other thing is we're getting into this vicious cycle where the current transport system, it causes us profound amount of health damage. It also causes 20% uh, of our national greenhouse gas emissions. And the, the greenhouse gas emissions themselves cause further damage through health damage through climate change. We know that climate change is sort of one of the biggest health um, crises of the 21st century. And the other thing that happens is that because our current transport system is causing people to um, have poor health through air pollution exposure, through road traffic injuries, that also means that the health sector has to emit greenhouse gases to treat them. So again, the health sector is about 4 to 5% of our national greenhouse gas emissions. And that's a very carbon intensive activity. And the transport system in its current configuration is actually forcing the health system to produce more greenhouse gas emissions. And again, also contributing to climate change. Um, so we're in this really vicious cycle. But I think what I wanted to say is that um, we don't have to be in this cycle. There's a whole lot, this is a really exciting time to be working in transport and I think most people hopefully would agree with me there, is that we, we know what the answers are, we just need to work towards getting to them. And I want to spend a few slides um, just talking about what a healthy, low carbon, equitable transport system looks like. Um, and I think this is a this is an image from uh, part of London where they've put in what's lots of low traffic um, neighbourhood infrastructure, and I could hear from the first talk that this is something Christchurch is looking towards doing, and this is absolutely fantastic. 
because these are probably some of the most effective things we can do to encourage cycling and walking. And we know also that it creates neighbourhoods that people feel safe in, where crime is lower, um, people are relaxed, they're not worrying about their children rushing out onto the road, they're not being blasted with noise or with fumes from traffic. The other thing we know is that um, some of the concerns that people have about putting this stuff in aren't really justified by what happen what actually happens. So we know that um, people who run shops in these kinds of areas, they actually generally see an increase in um, customers rather than a decrease. Uh, and we know that things like ambulances and fire engines doesn't really take them any longer to get to where they need to get to, even when this kind of infrastructure is in place. This is a, um, a cycle highway in Germany. So in Germany, they've invested in um, putting these sort of big, basically cycle roads between, uh, town, between small towns that aren't too far away from each other. And they separate them from traffic completely. And when they encounter roads, they tend to put tunnels under, they'll put a small under, underpass under the road so that um, cyclists don't need to slow down and... Um, uh, they don't need to interact with traffic at all. And so you can see that a low traffic, uh, healthy low-carbon transport system looks like somewhere where it's safe to send your kids off to travel independently by themselves. People don't need to sort of mentally prepare themselves to go out cycling or walking as people do at the moment. Um, you have to mentally gird your loins that you're going to have to get engaged with traffic um, and, and with all of the kind of abuse that can come along with that, people can just get on and they can cycle from place to place without any of that kind of stuff. And then it also a healthy low carbon transport system looks like a place where public transport is prioritised as well. This is an example of a bus rapid transit system and they are really popular, particularly in lots of areas in South America. These are... Um, uh, basically buses, uh, but they sit on their own bits of infrastructure so that their journey times are uh, quick and their journey times are really reliable. Uh, so they're really comfortable to ride. We know that these BRT systems are cheaper than um, sort of hard infrastructure for public transport, things like trams and trains. Bus rapid transit is quite a lot cheaper and it's also quite a lot quicker to implement. Um, and so this is the having um, comprehensive and uh, really well-priced public transport systems are also a key part of a healthy low-carbon transport system. But, but, but what about electric cars? This is a slide that I put in to preempt this kind of question. I think it's, a, it's important to say that electric cars are in a going to be important for us in the future. Moving away from an internal combustion engine fleet is really key, but we need to think that about electric cars as having quite a constrained role in, our, in the future of our cities. And this is the reason why, if we think about all the issues that we face in our cities with congestion, with noise pollution, with greenhouse gases, electric cars are at best an ambiguous solution to many of them. Uh, if you take a life cycle analysis, uh, electric, electric cars only reduce our carbon emissions by about 60%. Uh, so 40% of the emissions uh, are still there from driving an electric car because of the manufacturing and disposal um, and transport costs to get to New Zealand. They don't really help us with injury. They don't deal with physical inactivity, with transport stress or the space demands in cities. 
So while I'm not saying that we shouldn't move to an electric fleet because we absolutely should, I think we need to think of that as a secondary kind of solution um, and that the, the main focus that we should be thinking about is cycling, walking and public transport. Um, how do we get there? Well, I think the first thing to say is that this is all absolutely possible. None of this stuff hasn't actually been done elsewhere. It's actually not that radical. If we want to talk radical, we can talk about other things. Um, but what we need to do is systematically unpick all the pro-car bias that has been embedded in our current policy and practice and laws. And it's happened over the last 50 to 70 years. And we need to embed a different system in place. Um, and I'm super excited by this because this, these are the kind of this is the city that I would love to live in, and I would love it if my kids could ride safely to school by themselves. I think there's so much amazing potential here. Um, how do we do it? This is my wind up slide. Um, I think we need a vision and a plan, and we need a marketing campaign as well. So we need to be selling this vision to to the country because some of this stuff is really hard and change is hard. We need a really good um, legal framework to support it. Um, we need the right funding and we need it for our local and our central government to be pushing in the same direction because at the moment we've got a whole lot of um, incentives that just don't meet up to deliver us the outcomes that we want to do. Um, we need to out our vested interests. We've got lots of people who do really well out of the current system and we need to think hard about how we're going to change that. And I think we need to think about social license as something we create. It's not something that um, individuals or our, or our communities give to us. It's something that we create by doing stuff. And we've seen that a lot in public health with things like tobacco, with things like violence prevention. Um, this is We have created the social license by actually taking the action and people can see that this improves their lives. Um, and I'm going to finish up now because I can see that I have gone two minutes over time and I'm very sorry about that. Um, but enjoy the rest of the wonderful speakers. I'm sure you're going to get some fantastic um, um, talks for the rest of the day. Okay, right. We're moving on to um, absolutely my favourite part of these events, which is where we invite some locals to talk about what they're actually doing at the moment. So we have got six locals who um, I'd like to invite to come up along here now. And they're going to give us their quick fire stories about what they're currently doing, how they're currently moving around the city. I'm going to do a complicated COVID mic wiping thing in between, so excuse me. Uh, now, Moata, you're going to start. There you are. Uh, kia ora koutou. Um, my name's Moata Tamaira and I biked here today, which is quite typical for me. Um, when I was thinking about um, what I would say for this, I was trying to think of a word that encapsulated cycling for me. Um, and I found this quote from Susan B. Anthony, who, if you're not familiar with her, she's sort of um, how Kate Shepard is to New Zealand as Susan B. Anthony is to the US. Um, and she said, let me tell you what I think of bicycling. Was it bicycling? Bicycling. One of those. <laughs> I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. The picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. <laughs> Amazing, eh? 
Um, I believe that Susan B. Anthony was right. Cycling is freedom. And for me, that freedom is realised in more in different ways than she was probably thinking of. Um, I had the freedom to move around this wonderfully flat, cycling-friendly city, unencumbered by anybody else's timetable. I am not required to stay anywhere until a taxi or an Uber arrives, nor am I mindful of what time the car parking building closes. I am a free agent. Night and day, I leave when it suits me. Um, I have the freedom to hop on and off as the whim takes me. I can stop and look in a shop window or check out a new piece of street art. I'm never more than a kickstand away from grabbing a drink at the dairy or convenience store on my way or stopping to pervert Art Deco houses. I love you, Art Deco houses. Um, I have the freedom to pay absolutely nothing for my morning commute, not for fuel or parking. The only cost is to my legs, but it's good for your legs. It's made you strong, so stop complaining. (laughs) I have the freedom to wear whatever I want when I'm cycling. I often cycle in three-inch heels. The secret to doing this is that there is no secret. (laughs) It's just as easy as biking in flats, and it's certainly easier than walking in them. And any clothing is cycling clothing in my book. One Halloween, I biked to work in a black tulle veil, opera gloves and a cocktail dress. <laughs> the only fashion rule is always wear a helmet. And mini skirts are problematic. But anything you feel good in is good. I have the freedom to travel on my own at night. Where I might balk at walking home alone on a bike, I'm a moving target. I feel no fear. I'll leave you in the red glow of my rear light. Lit up while I lit out. I have the freedom to stop. If traffic gets too much for me, if I don't like this intersection, if turning right on this busy road is too stressful, I can, as if by magic, become a pedestrian. Just like that. Because if the road is too much, the footpath is always there until I'm ready to magically transform again. I have, finally, the freedom of feeling the breeze on my face and the road at my wheel and after grinding doggedly up the overbridge to Sydney, that freewheeling descent down the other side is like being 10 years old on my Raleigh 20 on a Saturday afternoon without a care in the world. And I also have the freedom to never, ever have to circle the block searching for a parking spot. Thank you. Now, Moata's very kindly going to do a double act for us because, unfortunately, Donna couldn't be here today, but she's sent in what she was going to say and Moata's going to read it. Thank yes, you. so I've magically transformed now into an entirely different person named Donna Robertson. Kia ora koutou. My name's Donna and I am a pedestrian. I like the word flaneur or flaneuse, a French term related to walking and being a passionate observer of the city. Walking for me isn't just a commute or exercise, it's an experience, and I see Christchurch up close. Walking is free in both senses of the word. I go at my own pace. My tip is a good backpack and shoes, and I need to think about how much I can carry. Once I carried a seven kilo book about beautiful libraries home, and that was weighty. I should mention Donna, like myself, is a librarian, so this is an occupational hazard. I stop and smell the roses. A few months ago, I saw a chap trimming his roses and told him how much I admire them when walking past, so he gave me a couple. Things I have seen walking. 
I like to take photos. I love the surprise of turning a corner and seeing new street art. Going down Cashel Street, I gasped when I spotted the eye-tricking new Riverside mural. Familiar sights I love when I'm walking. The Christchurch Town Hall and Ferrier Fountain especially lit up at night. The bookshelves and Dalman Architects on Colombo Street. Dairies, sunsets, sunrises, big skies. I mostly walk the same paths, but just by going down a different street, I see new buildings and things. I like observing people. Some can walk and do something else. I've seen a lady walking and eating butter chicken. (laughs) A chap walking and typing on a laptop. A man walking a cat. And once I saw someone walking backwards down the street. Things I have smelled. Walking in the evening, the smell of trees and plants is very alive. And when the rain hits the road, there's the, the amazing smell of petrichor. I smell dinners being cooked, the captivating odour of fish and chips and Indian food. If I'm walking by myself, I often have headphones on and listen to music. It's a chance to decompress. Walking alone eases my anxiety, but it's great to walk with family or friends. I walk with my kid to work and school. We chat, play games and sing songs. And once we did the whole of Bohemian Rhapsody twice. It's the best start to the day. Thanks. And I live the skirt skirt life. Uh, so that's a technical term for somebody that uh, uses e-scooters as their main form of transport, which is me. Um, I just want to preface this by saying I cannot follow up what we just got. That was amazing. Um, but yeah, so my main form of transport, pretty much every movement I make during the week that's work-related is via e-scooter. So I live in Phillipstown, and a lot of my work is in the central city, um, which makes it really easy and practical to just jump on a scooter and come in. So one of the things that makes it so easy for me to uh, go around via e-scooter is because we have so many cycleways. Um, Lots of people are not fans of cycleways, love them. Um, I like to remind people, particularly um, our car friends, that if we have lots of cycleways, it keeps the cars off the roads and you don't have to worry about hitting the cyclists. And they quite like that when we say that. Um, There's two main reasons that I choose to commute via e-scooter. The first one is it reduces the stress, and the second one is it increases the joy. So when I say it reduces the stress... Um, I don't have to worry about traffic. I don't have to worry about there being roadworks and all of a sudden a road's closed and I need to find a new way to get where I want to go. I don't have to worry about finding a car park. Amazing. And I don't have to worry about paying for a car park. If we weigh it up as well, I timed it once and it takes me longer to get in my car and drive into the office, um, like door to door, than it takes to take an e-scooter. So I'm not... I'm not losing anything there either. Um, Another way that it reduces stress is if I, for example, um, decide to go into town for some cups of tea um, and I want to get home, I would not feel safe walking home. Um, But I feel extremely safe, like how we said about the bikes. I feel extremely safe because I'm a moving target. Um, And there's been many times where it's been later at night 
and I've needed to get home. I haven't had to worry about um, drunk driving, getting an Uber, walking through unsafe neighbourhoods. I've just been able to get on a scooter and shoot home and not think twice about it, and that's a real luxury. Um, when I talk about it creating more joy, it's fun. It's fun. Like, it's such a great time just jumping on a scooter and just yeeting yourself into town. Um, technical terms. <laughs> but it just, it just adds that little bit of um, fun and excitement into your commute. And if we can add um, fun and excitement and joy and curiosity, as we talked about earlier today, into these little moments in our day, they add up over the day. And, yeah, that's why I like using e-scooters. Kia ora. Uh, kia ora. Um, full disclosure here, Jess is actually my youngest sister. She is currently following public health advice, which is if you feel unwell, get a test and stay home. Um, and that boy in the photo is my six-year-old nephew. So Jess is a sole parent. She works full-time and she looks after Tom uh, full-time as well, effectively. That's what you do when you're a working parent. Uh, and she got this e-cargo bike um, because she wanted to get a bit more exercise. She wanted to maybe uh, reduce her carbon footprint a bit. And she's done a lot of Ks on this e-cargo bike already. She loves it. Uh, Tom is not so keen right now. So this is a real story. Tom doesn't like sitting staring at mum's back. So the plan is that he will get a little side mirror. Uh, Jess also finds that while riding in the summer is wonderful, riding in the winter is a bit harder. She doesn't particularly like riding when it's wet and she doesn't particularly like riding with Tom when it's dark. So... Um, most of our, well, our part of the family live out in New Brighton and the cycle network, there's a bit of a hole in the network where we are, unfortunately. So what Jess did midway through this year is uh, she took advantage of her mortgage coming up for renegotiation. She put a little bit more on the mortgage and she has now bought herself um, a second-hand Nissan Leaf EV as well. So when it's dark, when it's cold, when it's rainy or when Tom is finding it extraordinarily difficult to get out of the house, they take the EV. And when it's sunny, when there's a little bit more time, they get on the bike. So, yep, that is a real story from a real person. And um, I'm incredibly proud of what she's doing right now. That's a nice photo of me. I'm not usually that cut at this time in the afternoon either. I'm David Boot. I own this company called EV City, and uh, I suppose more importantly, I drive and sell electric vehicles. When you drive to work in the morning, you drive to work with this great cloud of CO2 behind you. When I drive, I grow carrying this great cloud of smugness above me. Because every time I slow down, I'm harvesting some of the energy I've just spent back into my battery. When you slow down, you're wasting all of that energy, heating up your brakes, and you're still burning fuel. It's not so smart. When you're sitting at the lights, you're just burning fuel. I'm sitting there smiling. When you drive off, I, I've left you behind me. EVs are so much faster, uh, more exciting to drive, 
And I then go and spend my whole day trying to sell what I believe in. And let me tell you what your excuses are, because you do have them. And every customer that comes in comes in with the same three. And because you don't have a microphone, I'll tell you what your excuses are. <laughs> the first one is the batteries. What about the batteries? They're not recyclable. Well, let me tell you, 300 kilograms of fuel will last you about 30 hours and is gone. 300 kilograms of batteries will last you about 30 years and is by weight about 98% recyclable. The next objection you might have is something about the energy. Oh, they're just as bad because they burn fossil fuels. We're just having a, we have a fossil fuel burning power stations out in the country and you're just putting the energy into town. You're just as bad. Well, in New Zealand, about 82% of our power on average is renewable, and in the South Island, 100% of the power is made by renewable energy. Our biggest battery in New Zealand is actually the Southern Alps. It's a storage device, and when the water, when the, when the water melts, it's cheap running. The last excuse you have is range. You can't go far enough in an EV. Well, the NZTA tells me that you guys drive 16 kilometres a day on average, and if you live outside of the city, then your average is 28 kilometres a day. The worst EV you can buy does around 100 kilometres a day. So you could get through about a week's worth of travel for about a dollar. But then I do love the traditional married couple that comes in to see me and says, I'm not buying one until you can drive to Dunedin without stopping. And I look at him and say, your bladder can't do that. <laughs> and you don't do that. And that raises the next point. A lot of you have the fear of, I won't buy a car that won't complete 100% of my journeys when 99% of my journeys will be completed by them very effectively and very cheaply. What about that 1%? Think differently about the 1%. Stop and charge. You always do anyway. You have to stop and recharge yourself or uncharge yourself. And a final point I might, might like that to, to really, um, I suppose, highlight it. Once a year, pre-COVID, once a year I used to fly to visit my sister in Australia. I don't own a plane. <laughs> there are other ways to achieve those long-distance journeys. You don't have to have a one-size-fits-all policy. So at the end of the day, once I've listened to all your brown-beating discussions about why you won't buy an EV and get through to one or two of you, I drive home under my cloud of smugglers drive straight past the petrol station, give you a wave, watch you spending $100 when my trip costs me a dollar. And I'll continue to do that every day, and I'll be at the corner of Wordsworth Street and Gaston Street, smiling and waving at you all, just holding my nose. Thank you. Kia everybody. I'm Rachel Mullins. I don't know if I'm... Can anybody hear me? Great. Uh, so I'm Rachel Mullins, and um, I've been asked to talk about uh, being a person with a disability and what I do in terms of, yeah, trying to be a little uh, responsible with the climate, I guess. But before I get into that, I just want to say that what I've really liked today is listening to all of these people. It's made me realise again that we are more the same than we are different. So just because I'm in a wheelchair doesn't mean I can't help out with climate change. So as I was listening to everybody, I kept thinking, oh my God, that's me as well. So 
I'm a person that um, doesn't drive purely because you wouldn't want me on the road. I'm, I'm not really good at staying on the left-hand side of the road, and I'm not particularly good at going straight. So you don't really want me to drive anyway. But because I don't drive for most of my life, um, I'm totally reliant on taxis for transport. And one of the things I've always hated about taxis is I'm dictated to by what time they can pick me up and what time they can drop me off. So either I'm somewhere and I'm having a terrible time and the taxi's late, so I have a terrible time for an even longer time, or I'm having a great time and all of a sudden the taxi turns up and I've got to go. And I can't have a good time anymore with all my friends. So, about the time that Christchurch had the earthquakes, I spent a bit of time at home, working from home in the earthquakes. And as Christchurch rebuilt, and we got nice new footpaths and nice wide footpaths, and we had lights that told us how long we had to cross the road in the centre of the city, I started walking in my chair. But let's face it, this is my version of walking. So I started walking, and as I started walking, I noticed things around the city that I had never seen before, purely because I was always in the car. I talked to people that... Um, that I'd never met before, and they talked to me. I got to know people in my in my neighbourhood, and most of all, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And probably the best thing I've done in the last 12 months uh, was on New Year's Day this year, some friends and I took a taxi, admittedly, out to Ferry Mead, but then we walked from Ferry Mead along the coastal pathway out to Sumner. That was the best thing I'd ever done in my life. And I'm really excited that the council has just started to do the last little bit of that walkway, because obviously not next few years, but the one after that, I'm going to do it again, and I probably won't need 15 bourbons when I get to the pub at the other end. It was a little bit rough. But I mean, I guess the thing for me is I do still use taxis from time to time, especially when it's cold. Um, but it gives me choice about how I'm going to travel, when I'm going to travel, and which way I want to do it. The other thing is, like someone else mentioned, I love the cycleways. The cycleways are dead flat. I don't really like hills and bumps and stuff like that. So the, the cycleways are dead flat. If I'm walking at night, the cycleways are the most lit up part of the road. So I feel really safe. And like somebody else said, I'm a moving target. Nobody wants to take me on either. So thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I'm probably the only one here not talking about myself today, so it's a bit of a change. 
I work for Ochatari Community Housing Trust. Uh, we manage about two and a half thousand social houses around Christchurch and Banks Peninsula. We've recently completed 90 homes out on Brougham Street, so anyone who's driven down Brougham Street will know exactly where I'm talking about. So that's us. Uh, as part of that, as part of the... Sorry, I'm just going to move over there. As, as part of the co company, we've committed ourselves to have an all-electric fleet. And as part of the discussions, we said, how's that fair with just the company uh, delivering a, an electric cars, an electric fleet for ourselves? We've cars, scooters. We don't have bikes for ourselves at the moment. But how's that fair to our tenants? Can our tenants afford cars? Can they not? Can, is there a way around it? So as part of our thinking, we came up with the idea, can we do a car sharing scheme for our tenants at a complex? So after a lot of thinking, a lot of humming and hiring, and really a lot of research that pr provided us very little answers of how many cars we should provide, what should we provide, how should they work, how should they operate it, we st stuck a finger up in the air and came up with an idea. So we've provided two cars out there, two Nissan Leafs, nothing spectacular, but good quality, I think 2015, 2016 Nissan Leafs. Good range for all the car journeys out there, but we sort of said that's not fair for our tenants because at the end of the day, do we want them just using the cars every now and then for, as people have said, a spectacular trip, you have something awkward, something strange to do. So we also went in the idea and got them EV bikes as well. So we have five EV bikes, two cars there between 90 people. So the, the bikes are for people if they want to disappear for a day, want to go to somewhere different, park up, meet the friends, have a long talk, have a long chit-chat. The bikes, in our vision, is to have them so if you want to go do your shopping, you jump in the car, you go off, do your shopping, put it back, drop, drop in, so you're not stuck to bus timetables, you're not stuck to anything, so you can go in, get out. Yes, there's a charge for the car, it's basically covering the cost of running the service, the bikes are free, so if you want to take your bike, you want to go down to the beach for the day, take the bike, go down to the beach today, come back, everyone's happy, everyone's smiling, so that's what we've done. We are... There are teething issues with it on the systems and th things that are working, people thinking they're uh, free bikes for everyone and stuff like that, but we're, we're getting over those problems now. Um, we have now done... Sorry, I'll look at the facts and figures. Uh, we have had... Uh, what was it? We have about 20 active users out of 90 homes. We have done about 1,000 kilometres and about... Uh, close on 200 hours of travel time in cars saved from our people. Our anticipation going forward is that these will pick up more, people get more used to them. As people's old cars uh, basically give up the ghost, most of our tenants don't, can't afford to maintain them, can't afford to replace them, and we believe we'll get more successful as we go along, but time remains to be told. And we'll see how we go with them at the moment. We're actually really proud of what we're doing. We're really proud of uh, how they're working out. Thank you so much. Um, kia ora koutou. Uh, uh, ko Alex Hallett O. Uh, and I'd like to talk about how much I love the number 28 bus. Uh, I, uh, 
I came here by the number 28 bus, um, and uh, um, I could have come here uh, by a dirty diesel Land Rover that my other half owns. Uh, he's quite happy to take me places um, in the Land Rover. Um, I'm less so. And, um, uh, but um, if I need to, to get to somewhere that the, the number 28 bus doesn't get to, then uh, I will take the, the Land Rover. Um, or there's a share, scar, a share car in, um, in Littleton, an electric um, share car. And I can use that if I want to go and pick something up on Trade Me that I don't want him to know anything about. Um, or uh, if I want to go to the eco shop and spend more than 15 minutes, because I'm allowed 15 minutes, that's it. So um, you can't get there on, on the number 28 bus. But today I got the number 28 bus and I love taking the bus. And uh, this is why. I mean, you, you've heard all the normal reasons why the bus is great uh, environmentally. It's a lot better than a 1975 Land Rover. Um, also, you don't need to find or pay for parking. Um, but I think the undersold thing about buses is they are great for your mental health. Uh, when you get on a bus, that's it. You don't have to worry. Like The driver does all the worrying for you. You can just sit on the bus and watch the world go by or read a book or listen to a podcast or I hadn't even thought about learning a language um, but you you can do all that on the bus you don't have to worry and then if there's traffic if the traffic's a nightmare you can't do anything about it you can't get into road rage with anybody in fact quite the reverse I've had awesome conversations on the bus uh, and then um, I've even met a, a lifelong friend at the number 28 bus, uh, bus stop at South City on the way back to Littleton. Um, and, uh, and we got chatting because, you know, if you're getting the number 28 bus at South City, you're generally going back to Littleton. Oh, Littleton, you know, where do you, which street do you live? Ah, Sunnyside. Well, it's Morningside and Eveningside when it comes to the sun, but that's another story. But yeah, we're still good friends. Even though he's moved to the city, and I have to get the bus in to, to meet up with him for lunch. Um, but uh, in general, I would say that getting the bus is relaxing. Um, it's, it allows you to do other things, uh, not worry. Uh, the only drawback is that it doesn't go often enough. And that's why I've come here today to persuade more people to take the bus, because if more t people take the bus, there'll be more buses. Um, and uh, I, I, I also know that if my dog was allowed on the bus, she would love it too. And that's the other thing I'd really like to see is pets on buses. Yes. Pets on buses. Yes. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all of our local speakers very much indeed. Thank you, Mwata. Donna, Courtney, Jess, Dave, Rachel, Ed and Alex. This has been part one of Moving Around a 21st Century City, the fifth event in the Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 special series on how to achieve the city's 2030 climate targets. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for kindly sharing this recording. 
Podcasts of the whole series are available on the Plains FM website. Search Christchurch Conversations. Conversations.